The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come tonight to study uh, this incredible book, Pilgrim's Progress, and we think about the uh, pictorial uh, version of sanctification that He's given us, Lord, we're mindful of our need to keep making progress in our Christian lives. Oh, heaven forbid, Lord, that we should grow weary and that we should get lazy in our Christian life, that we should get cold or hard, or that we should backslide or turn away from the path through willful disobedience or through neglect of the spiritual disciplines you've given to us. God, I pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would keep making progress toward our goal, the upward goal of the call of Jesus Christ on our lives, that we would realize that you bid us every day to get up and march and follow. As you said to your early disciples, follow me. And there's a sense of progress and journey in the life. It's not static at all, but it's alive and it's difficult, Lord. It is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. And yet, Lord, your grace is sufficient for us and that we will never be uh, ultimately deterred or turned away from the way, but that you will uh, continue to, to make progress with us until we come into your presence. Father, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here tonight, Father, that you would give us courage for that journey. I pray that tonight the things that we learn would put hope and fear in us, O oh Lord, in proper proportion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say that uh, the section that we're going to look at tonight probably is the most instructive section of Pilgrim's Progress for me personally. In other words, I learned the most about the Christian life from the things that Christian learned in the interpreter's house. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. There's just such an incredible insight into the work of God, the work of grace in the heart in the interpreter's house. Now, last time we began with Christian in the city of destruction. And he was burdened, he was distressed and tormented because he was reading a book. Now, one might give advice, if the book torments you that much, stop reading it. And that's about the advice he got from some friends. Put the book away then if it's causing you so much problems. But we can't put the book away now, can we? Because it's God's book. It's God's word to us. And God is speaking to us. And Christian knew he couldn't simply put the book away. And so he was in a lamentable state. He was in distress and torment. And what was causing him distress and torment as he read in that book? What was he concerned about? He wanted to know how he could be saved. Saved from what, Bob? What was his problem? Yeah, he lived in the wrong place. He lived in the city of destruction. That's right. And the city of destruction represents what? Represents sin. It represents your address if you're not a Christian. You know, it, it just it represents our nation for those that are not believers. Uh, it's, it's basically the place where non-believers live. They live in the city of destruction. And, and uh, Paul testifies to this very plainly, doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Remember that we were once vessels of, vessels of uh, wrath like the rest. We were uh, by nature objects of wrath. We deserve to be, to be punished for our sins. We follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. 
all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That means we lived in the city of destruction. And Christian came to believe that he lived there. That's the first step to salvation, isn't it? To think that you have a dire situation before God, that if something doesn't change for you, you will be condemned and you'll spend eternity in hell. Uh, and we talked last week about evangelism and how we frequently bypass that message, don't we? We don't really want to talk about destruction. Now, if we leave that message out of our gospel preaching, what then are we telling the people? Why should they come to Christ? <coughs> if we leave that whole judgment, wrath, condemnation, cursing aspect out of our preaching of the gospel, why would somebody come to Christ? Say again. That's right. As a life enhancer. That Jesus is going to help you in your life here. Right? And we've talked about that in the past. But Christ is not merely a life enhancer. He's actually mostly a savior. And he's going to bring you into incredible distress if you follow him along this way. And we're going to be seeing that. But he does get you out of the city of destruction. So that's how it, it happened. Now, he had some partners that were journeying with him. Remember from his town, his family wouldn't go with him. But pliable and obstinate came along, and obstinate uh, was hardened and had no interest whatsoever in spiritual things and thought that Christian was, was ridiculous, really, foolish for leaving his hometown and journeying in such a dangerous way. But then there was pliable. And pliable was pliable because he was pliable. He was flexible. He was yieldable, right? He could, he could uh, blow with the wind, right? And it was looking really good for him to journey with Christian for a while. What was it that interested Pliable in making a little bit of a trip with Christian? What was he interested in? Yeah, he wanted to go to heaven. He said, sounds good. Tell me more. I'm interested. I'm excited. Say again. How do you know, Jenny, that he wasn't interested in trials? That's right. So they came to that mucky place called the Slough of Despond, and he started to drown. They both started to sink. But Christian was in a worse condition than Pliable, wasn't he? Why was that? Why was Christian in more danger than Pliable? He had a terrible burden on his back. And the burden represent, represents what? Sin. Conviction of sin in particular, I think. A sense of the, of the weight of your sins pressing down fit to crush you. And uh, Pliable, in a very noteworthy way, did not have that. He had no conviction of sin, just an interest in heaven. And so as soon as there was trouble or difficulty in his life, he gave up. He's the epitome of the rocky soil Christian. Begins for a little while with joy. Why does the rocky soil Christian begin with joy? What's he excited about? What brings him joy? Jesus said that he hears the word and at once receives it with joy, the rocky soil Christian. And not call it Christian. He's not really a Christian. He's a hearer of the word. Why does he receive it with joy? Yeah, prospect of heaven. And so how clever is Bunyan to see that? And he doesn't associate that with the rocky soil, but that's exactly what we've got. He starts out with great excitement, starts out with joy, but he doesn't get very far. What is it that separates a rocky soil hearer of the word from the way of righteousness? What, what makes them give up? trouble any kind of trouble that comes because of the word any kind of difficulty and so he's in the slew of despond but without too much trouble he gets out right 
And it turns out that he gets out right near his home. So he hasn't made much progress, has he? He ends up right back where he started in the city of destruction. But Christian needs help, and God sends help by means of a guy named... Well, later we'll get evangelist. Evangelist who want to tell them to begin the journey. Who is it that helps them? There you go, help. That's <clears throat> a trick question, I'm sorry. At any rate, help gives him a handout, and, and he gets out. And then he instructs him to go... Uh, to the wicked gate. Now, as he begins his progress to the wicked gate, he gets some advice. All right? He meets a man named Worldly Wise Man, right? And Worldly Wise Man says, what's your problem? He says, well, I have this terrible burden on my back, this terrible weight. By the way, parenthetically, some people think, this is just a biographical note on Bunyan, Bunyan was a tinker. That means he was a repairer of kitchen goods, like he'd come and fix your pots and pans, sharpen your knives and all that. What do you think he would use to sharpen your knife? A whetstone, right? And specifically a round one that he could set up and get it spinning and all that. How much do you think that weighed? Uh, it was heavy, right? And he probably carried it around on his back everywhere he went. And so some people think there's a connection there between his trade and the burden that Christian carried around. He remembers those years of carrying that thing on his back. Either way, be that as, as it may, he's got this terrible burden. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man has some advice for him. What advice does he say? Does he give him so he can get rid of his burden? So you've got to get rid of your burden. That's your problem. So he, he, he gives him some advice. And what does he tell him? Do you remember? Look on your map if you're not sure where we're at. We're after the slew of despond. <clears throat> Shortcut to morality. Morality is a town in Pilgrim's Progress. It's a place where uh, Mr. Legality lives with his son, Mr. Civility, right? And what does all that represent, that whole thing, that whole bypass? That's right. That's right. I know, Nathan, you remember that chart you did for me, right? If you bypass the cross, you're going to end over in morality, aren't you? You're going to try to do the, the, the Ten Commandments and all that by your own. But as you remember from the chart that Nathan did for us, it's a shrunken commandments. You know, it doesn't have all the commandments and it's a little bit easier to follow, right? But it's morality. Now, is the town of morality and, uh, and Mr. Legality, who, meet, who you meet there, are they effective at getting the burden off your back? Can they do it? Yes and no. Remember, it's a little bit of a trick question. In one sense, they really can, and it depends what you think the burden is. If the burden is conviction over sin, a sense of personal guilt, they are very effective at getting rid of it, actually. When you start becoming a moral person, you start becoming good, you start feeling good about yourself, don't you? You're making progress in virtues, right? You see that you're a good person. You see that you treat your neighbor better, better than you used to. You follow the outward uh, uh, laws better than you used to, etc. And so the burden is gone. You have no sense of conviction. But under God, your wrath, uh, the wrath and the judgment is even greater than it ever was before because you've turned aside from the way. And that's where we were when we uh, stopped last time. Uh, he heads toward morality. And as he's heading there, he comes toward a mountain, Mount Sinai. And it's got all kinds of threatenings and lightning and thunder and, and it's a terrifying place. And actually, as he goes up that hill, he finds that his burden gets even what? Even heavier. He feels even more conviction. He feels even more guilty than he ever did before. And so he has no sense whatsoever of relief, quite the opposite. Now, what does that represent in the Christian life? the law. He's heading up Sinai and instead of leading toward a good feeling for himself, morality, he actually finds that he cannot keep the law. He tries and tries and tries and yet it does not alleviate his burden. He feels only ever more guilty. 
There's there's some other a few other seats in here, if you want. Okay, I'll shift down if you want. Actually, this people are already here. Shift down, and then the newcomers don't have to get up in front of this throng. Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> that was bad. All right. Good. Thank you for doing that. Okay. This, I think, represents the true work of grace in someone's heart. Because the law will not save you, will it? And if you really are going to be saved, you will realize it, won't you? You will not be a Pharisee. You're not going to end up trying to work it out by your own strength. Remember what it says in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now you think about that. If you could get there that way, then what did Jesus need to come for? Why did he need to take on a body if you can work it out? If you can just follow the Ten Commandments on your own, did Jesus need to come and suffer and die? Absolutely not. I can assure you that Jesus did not suffer on the cross under the wrath of God to provide one of 16 different ways to get to heaven. He suffered and died on the cross because there was no other way. And we live in a very pluralistic society now, don't we, in which we want there to be many ways to heaven. Well, let me ask you a question. If there are many ways to heaven, then why did Jesus die? What a foolish thing. I will lay down my life to provide the 17th way for you to go to heaven. It doesn't make any sense. And Paul says it directly in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness could be gained by the law through your efforts then Christ died for nothing. There was no need for him. But righteousness cannot be gained by the law. And Christian learns that. And praise God for it, isn't it? Praise God that Luther only found himself more and more guilty the harder he worked at religion. Praise God that people realize that that way will not get there. Now, as we're looking at the story, we pick it up with evangelists coming to him. Now, I mentioned last time that one of the striking aspects of Pilgrim's Progress is how seriously it deals with sin. It is no small thing to turn out of the way in Pilgrim's Progress. It's a big deal when you stop following the way and get off into a byway or a path. It's a huge deal. And so Evangelist comes and confronts him, and Christian is ashamed of being off the way, as well he should be. He's ashamed of being at Mount Sinai. He's ashamed of the trouble that he's in. And Christian says to him, Is there any hope? He asks Evangelist. I'm on page 96, those of you that have a copy of this, or... uh, He's talking to evangelists a second time in your own version, whatever page number it is. I have no idea. But at any rate, he's talking to evangelists and he says, Sir, what think you? Is there any hope? May I now go back and go up to the wicked gate? Shall I not be abandoned for this and sent back from thence ashamed? I am sorry that I have hearkened to this man's counsel, but may my sin be forgiven. He's very concerned about his soul at this point. Evangelist then said evangelist to him, Thy sin is very great. Very interesting what he says there. We would immediately want to comfort, right? We would just want to put our arms around this person. They're obviously a spiritual beggar, right? Not so fast in Pilgrim's Progress. First, they need to understand how serious is their sin. And, and, and Evangelist says, I want you to understand how great it is, the sin that you have committed here. You've actually committed two sins, he says. You've committed two evils. Thou hast forsaken the way that is good to tread in forbidden paths. So what are the two sins? It's the same thing in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, you have committed two evils. He talks to his own people. 
and he says, you have forsaken the true and living God, your, your fountain of, of, of living water, in effect, and you've dug for yourself your own cistern to drink from, idolatry. And so it's a double sin whenever you turn out of the way onto something else. It says, you've committed a great sin, yet will the man at the gate receive thee. Isn't that wonderful? He says he will receive. Jesus said, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. And so Christ is gracious. He is willing to forgive. He's willing to take you back. But he says this, only said he, take heed that thou not turn aside again, lest thou perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. So he gives him a warning. He says, don't do it again. Okay? And continue on. So now he's on forbidden territory, right? He's off the road and he's got to get himself back onto the road. And listen to how he does it. Then the Christian did address himself to go back and evangelist after he had kissed him and gave him one smile, bid him Godspeed. So he went on his way with haste. Neither spake he to any man by the way, nor if any asked him, would he vouchsafe them an answer? He went like one that was all the while treading on forbidden ground and could by no means think himself safe till again he was got into the way which he left to follow Mr. Worldly Wise Man's counsel. What is his mental state as he's journeying back to the road to make progress again toward the wicked gate? What is his attitude at that point? Say again. There's a sense of urgency, almost a sense of fear. Like, I cannot wait to get my feet off this forbidden ground and get back on the road that I want to travel. And again, I feel that we Christians just deal way too lightly with our sins. We're convicted. We know 1 John 1, 9. We confess it. We turn from it, so we think, and that's it. But God deals more deeply here in Pilgrim's Progress. And, and this guy, as soon as he thinks, is there a chance for me? Can I still go back? Yes, but go back with all haste. He obeys. And as fast as he can, he gets back on the proper road. All right, so in the process of time, Christian gets up to the gate. Now, over the gate, there was written these words, Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Isn't that wonderful? And so this is the gate of salvation. He knocks, therefore, more than once or twice. He really wants to get in. Now may I enter here, will he within, open to sorry me, though I have been, an undeserving rebel, then shall I not fail to sing his lasting praise on high. So there's a little poem there. But the essence of the poem is brokenness and humility. I'm an undeserving rebel. I don't deserve to come in here, but would you please open to me nonetheless? Reminds me of what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't come into the kingdom of heaven pridefully. You come in like a beggar. And he's saying, please let me in. At last there came a grave person, that means a serious-minded person, to the gate named Goodwill, who asked who was there and whence he came and what he would have. My kids and I acted this out last night, remember? Or was it two nights ago? Was it last night? So here's Goodwill on one side, and he's calling through, and he says, who are you? Where would you come from? And what do you want? And he says, well, I am uh, traveling from the city of destruction. I'm a poor, burdened sinner. I come from the city of destruction, but I'm going to Mount Zion that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. I would, therefore, sir, uh, since I am informed that by this gate is the way thither, know if you are willing to let me in. And then Goodwill answers and says, I am willing with all my heart, said he, and with that he opened the gate. Isn't that beautiful? Somebody, if you would, look at John, at John 6, verse 37. You can all turn there if you have your Bibles. I love John 6, and verse 37. Somebody read that to me. It's one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. John 6, 37. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Isn't that wonderful? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And all that come to me, if I can rephrase, I will receive them gladly. I will in no wise cast them out. I will accept them. Anybody that comes, I'll accept. Isn't that wonderful? Here's the pure, the holy, the undefiled Son of God. And he could be choosy if he wanted to. But if the Father brings a lost sinner to Christ, Jesus will receive him. Gladly he will receive him. And so we see that acted out here at the gate, doesn't he? Good, goodwill says, I'll gladly open the gate to you. Be happy to do it. Just as long as you're a spiritual beggar now, though. I'm not going to hear any arrogance or boasting or pride. Let me in because I'm such a great person. But I'm a per, poor, burdened sinner, and I want to flee the wrath to come. And he says, come on in. Now, it's interesting. When Christian was stepping in, the other gave him a pull. So this is what I do with my kids. They love this kind of stuff. So I was Mr. Goodwill. I opened the door, and then as soon as the door's open, I go, whoosh, and slam the door. And why? Well, he says, then Christian, what means that? The other told him, a little distance from this gate, there is erected a strong castle of which Beelzebub is the captain, the devil, right? From thence, both he and them that are with him shoot arrows at those that come up to the gate, if perhaps they may die before they can enter in. Isn't that amazing? So just as the sinner is getting convicted of their sin, they're close to making a decision for Christ, Satan would love to kill them if he could. And so there's the, the arrows. It's almost like the door gets shut and it's like, you know, a bunch of arrows hit the door just in in time. That's really kind of exciting, isn't it? The Christian has no idea. Why did you do that? And then said, Christian, I rejoice and tremble. Isn't that something? A sense of the joy, but also the fear of, of wow, was I saved just in time. And it's an incredible thing. And boy, if our eyes were open to the realities of heaven and hell all the time, I don't think we could even get through a day so, so burdened would be, we be with uh, the, the, the verities, the truth. And how much more to know that lost relatives and friends are literally hanging, dangling over hell. And at any moment they might fall in. I think about that. Uh, I saw once a motorcycle rider. I think we we're up in Maine and he was riding on one of those racing motorcycles. You know, the kind where you lean way forward and you're in a, you know, you're, he had no helmet on. And he had like a t-shirt flapping and it seemed like he probably was going around 80 miles an hour and it was a twisting, turning road. And I thought, I didn't want to judge the guy, but it's probably not a Christian, okay? All right, you know, I didn't want to judge him for sure, but I mean, the Holy Spirit just doesn't let you ride your motorcycle like that if he lets you ride one at all, all right? I'm not saying all motorcycles, believe me, I'm not saying that, but what I'm, I am saying is not like that. And so it's quite, at least say this, it's possible he was not a Christian. And if not, then how close is he to eternal damnation? All he's got to do is hit a patch of sand and he's gone. And just to realize that God doesn't owe him a thing. He doesn't owe him anything. It's a terrifying thought. And so Christian is just in in time. Boy, that's powerful. Well, goodwill takes him in and begins to question him. And we're not going to read through this section here. It's, it's beneficial, but boy, I want to get to the interpreter. So uh, read it yourself. But basically, Goodwill talks to him and he says, "Why? basically, why did you come alone? What about your family? What about your neighbors? And he grills him about them. That makes me think about Judgment Day when, when Christ might ask me similar questions. Now, you worked at that company. How long did you work there? Okay. And who did you work with? And, you know, did you witness to them? Or you had a boss? Did you talk? Yeah. What about your family? Tell me about them. And, wow, <laughs> am I accountable for them? 
Yeah, you are. You may be the only Christian in your family, the only Christian in your neighborhood, the only Christian in your workplace. Think of God asking you about them by name. Goodwill does that with Christian here, doesn't he? So that's pretty serious. One thing, though, when he talks about pliable, and pliable goes back, Christian says this, truly said Christian, I have said the truth of of pliable. And if I should also say all the truth of myself, it would appear there is no betterment betwixt him and myself. It is true that he went back, but I went off the way. So he didn't forget his sin, did he? Even after now, he's back on the road and making progress. He remembers what he did through Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And he says, I'm really no different than pliable. There's a deep humility that Christian has here. He recognizes that he's saved only by grace. Now, uh, Goodwill tells him that he must travel and the road that he's going to travel has been laid out before uh, him by the patriarchs and by the prophets and by Christ himself and by the apostles. It is what Jesus called the straight way. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It's a narrow road. Now, the wide road, the big highway, the big broad... That, that speaks to me of tolerance, doesn't it? And acceptance. There's many lanes on that highway, aren't there? There's an awful lot of ways to get to hell. <laughs> but there's only one way to get to heaven. That seems to be the message of the wide and the narrow. And so there is this straight road. And he says, well, how can I know whether I'm on the road? He said, it's as straight as rule can make it. That's what he said. Just stay on that straight road. If something's twisting or turning or winding, you can know for sure <laughs> that that is not the way. So stay on that straight road, and so he travels on. Now, as he comes, he comes to the house of interpreter, and we get uh, just to one of the most significant sections of this whole journey. Now, it's interesting. Interpreter, I don't really know who he signifies. It's possible that he represents the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's possible that he represents a godly pastor or teacher. I think one of those two. Or a discipler, somebody who can come into your life early on and begin teaching you some things. If it is the Holy Spirit, he's represented by a candle or a light that he, um, that he lights. He goes on until he comes to the house of the interpreter where he knocked over and over and at last one came to the door and asked who was there. Christian answered, Sir, here is a traveler who is bid by an acquaintance of the good man of this house to call here for my prophet. I would therefore speak with the master of the house. And so he called for the master of the house who after a little while came to Christian and asked him what he would have. Uh, Sir, said Christian, I am a man that am come from the city of destruction, and I am going to Mount Zion. And I was told by the man that stands at the gate, at the head of the way, that if I called here, you would show me excellent things such as would help me in my journey. So that's the point. He's at Interpreter's house to learn some things, to to be shown some things that are going to help him in his traveling, help him in his journey. And so he's there. Then Interpreter says, Come in. I will show thee that which will be profitable to thee. And so he commanded his man to light the candle and bid Christian to follow him. So here's this light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's illumination. This represents, I think, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And how right is it of Bunyan to put interpreter's house after the gate and not before? I think it's after you come in and make the commitment to, uh, to Christ. And I tell you what, it's a little tough for me to figure out when, when Christian is saved or regenerated. Is it at the wicket gate or is it when he comes to the cross? I don't really know. Steve, what do you think? Which of those two is it? <laughs> can't tell. It's tough. And I, I don't really know that we need to resolve it. But I know this. Once you're past that wicket gate and you, you're on the way, that's when your mind really starts to take in truth, right? 
You learn most of your Christian truth after conversion, not before, right? Because before you were dead in your transgressions and sins and, your, and spiritual things were foolish to you. But now all of a sudden you can see things you never saw before. And so interpreter's house is after the wicked gate. Now the first thing that he shows him, he shows him seven things, seven. He shows him the picture of the, of the Christian man, the picture on the wall. Then there's the dusty room, the little boy's passion and patience that are arguing. Uh, one of them's arguing anyway. My favorite is number four, the fire against the wall. We'll get to that, God willing. Uh, stately palace, number five, uh, despair. The man in despair in a cage. And then the dream of judgment day. These are the seven things he shows him. They're visions that he has uh, relevant to his journey and to his situation. Look at the first one, the picture on the wall. He shows him, he call, calls him into a private room and he bids that his man open a door. The which, uh, when he had done, Christian saw the picture there of a very grave person uh, hang up against the wall. And this was the fashion of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand. So he's got the Bible in his hand and he's looking up to heaven. The law of truth was written upon his lips and the world was behind his back. It stood as if it pleaded with men and a crown of gold did hang over its head. Then said, Christian, what meaneth this? Interpreter answered, the man whose picture this is is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail in birth with children and nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas thou seest him with his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand and the law of truth written on his lips, it is to show thee that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. Even as also thou seest him stand as if he pleaded with men and whereas thou seest the world is cast behind him and that a crown hangs over his head, that is to show thee that slighting and despising the things that are present for the love that he hath to his master's service, he is sure in the world, world that uh, comes next to have glory for his reward. Now, said the interpreter, I have shown thee this picture first. Listen, because the man whose picture this is is the only man whom the Lord of this place, whether you, have, whether you are going, hath authorized to be your guide. So it's a picture of a guide for Christian on his journey. Therefore, it's a picture of what? Who guides you on your journey? The Holy Spirit. Is it the Holy Spirit, though? Think about it. Maybe the interpreter is the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I think this probably represents a pastor. All right? He's got a Bible in his hand. He's thinking. He's got the law of truth on his lips, and he's able to beget children. All right? Didn't the Apostle Paul said, I'm in anguish for you until Christ has formed you. I'm like a woman in childbirth, he says to the Galatians. So it could be the Holy Spirit, but I tend to believe that the interpreter is the Holy Spirit, so I don't really know. Uh, either way, this is the guide for your journey. Now, uh, I think it's possible that it's the Holy Spirit because he does give us counsel and comfort. The Bible says in John 6:45, they will all be taught by God. So ultimately, any instruction and guidance you get is from, um, is from uh, the Holy Spirit. But this is a picture of a man, and I hesitate to say that the Holy Spirit would be pictured as a man in that painting. So I tend to believe he's a guide, namely a, a pastor. Moving on, the second thing he shows him is the dusty room. And this is, a, this is a potent example here. Then he took him by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because it had never been swept. The which, after he had reviewed a little while, the interpreter called for a man to come and sweep. Now, when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that the Christian had almost therewith been choked then said the interpreter to a damsel, a young lady, <laughs> that stood by, 
Bring hither the water and sprinkle the room, the which when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. Now, what do you think? Before we go on and interpret, it'll tell us what it means. What do you think that represents? If you haven't read this before. If you had, you can't. That's cheating. What do you think this represents? This parable. Huh? Infant baptism. Wow. Isn't that something? Sprinkling. It's not likely, given that Bunyan was a Baptist after all. Um, possible. Possible. Huh? Okay. What is the goal? All right, the goal is to get the room clean. Okay, it's covered with dust everywhere. The first attempt does nothing to clean the room, right? The second attempt is very effective in cleaning the room, right? And so something has come which makes the cleansing, the cleaning, effective. Listen to what interpreter says. Then said Christian, what means this? Aren't you glad that Christian keeps asking that question? <laughs> what does this mean? All right, I'll tell you. Then the interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of a man. Think about that. It's your heart. The heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and his inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. But she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now, whereas thou sawest that soon as the first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about the room by him that he could not be cleansed but thou wast almost choked therewith. This is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, actually doth revive and put strength into and increase the sin. Isn't this just Pauline theology? Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. It's kind of like um, you know, getting a piece of mail and you, and you read it and, and it says, do not open or something like that, you know? And it's like, oh, I wouldn't even be tempted if except for that sign, do not open. Or whatever you do, don't enter this door. And temptation starts to take over, right? Paul talks about coveting. I wouldn't even know what coveting was except that the law had told me don't covet. But once I read the law, I had all kinds of coveting in my heart. And so what does the law do to an unregenerate heart but stir up sin? The law cannot save you. That's what it's saying. But once grace comes, grace is water sprinkled all over the place, then the cleanup can start. And what is it that does the cleanup? Well, it's the law after grace has come. And that's again Pauline theology. Romans 8, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man. And so He became a sin offering in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Did you hear that? So that we might obey the law. So what does He do? The law comes, we can't keep it. We can't obey. It only stimulates sin. Christ comes, obeys fully, gives you His righteousness. Grace comes in your heart and then He brings you back to the law and says, now fulfill this. Keep it. Obey. That's how it works. So the room gets cleaned after all. One of the things, uh, by the way, I re I'm reminded of here is the story that Jesus told. He talks about uh, the demons, a demon-possessed man. He says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. And then it says, I'll go back to the place I left. When it rises, it finds a house swept clean, put in order, but unoccupied. What does that mean? There's no grace. There's no indwelling Holy Spirit. God is not there. 
And he says, oh, okay, it's even better than before. I'll take seven other spirits. And they go in and live there. It's talking about moral reformation. It's all the same lesson again and again. You can't clean yourself up because your final condition is worse than it was before. All right. Number three, passion and patience. I saw moreover in my dream that the interpreter took him by the hand and had him into a little room where sat two children, each one in his chair. The name of the eldest was Passion, and the name of the other was Patience. Passion seemed to be much discontented, but Patience was very quiet. Then Christian asked, What is the reason of the discontent of Passion? The interpreter asked, The governor of, of them uh, would have him stay for his best things till the beginning of next year, but he will have all now. So basically, he wants his inheritance now. He wants his good stuff now, immediately. Give it to me now but patience is willing to wait. Then I saw that one came to passion and brought him a bag of treasure and poured it down at his feet, the which he took up and rejoiced there, therein and withal laughed patience to scorn. But I beheld after a while that he had lavished all away and had nothing left but rags. Then Christian said to interpreter, expound this matter more fully to me. So he said, these two lads are figures Passion is a figure of the men of this world and patience of the men of that which is to come. So what's going on here? You've got two boys and one of them's a spoiled brat and he wants his stuff now. And somebody comes along and says, here, enjoy. And so he pours out the treasures at, at passion's feet and passion gets up and plays and has a great time. And while he's playing, he laughs patience to scorn because he's sitting patiently waiting in his chair and has nothing, so it seems, Right? But in the end, all of his treasure is gone. Then comes the governor to patience and gives him his inheritance. What does it represent? Well, it represents two ways of making your way through the world. There's the Esau approach, and then there's the Jacob approach, right? Esau is a man of this world. He wants his stuff now. I want soup. I'm hungry. Feed me. He's passion. He's feeding the lusts of the flesh, right? And he lives that way. And he enjoys himself for a while in the world. But after a while, the treasure's gone, right? Just like the uh, prodigal son. All the riches are gone. And in, in the end, there's no pleasure in this world, right? But there's patience sitting waiting. And what is patience waiting for? What is he hoping for? What is he waiting for? What's his, his stuff? And when's he going to get it? Later. That's right. Deferred pleasure. He's waiting for heaven, isn't he? He's waiting for eternal inheritance, and he's going to keep waiting, and he waits patiently. And in the end, he gets far more wealth and riches than passion ever did. Basically, the people of this world do not understand the way you live. You do not understand the way they live. Esau lives for now. He lives for his stomach. He lives for his pleasures. He lives for today. Jacob lives by faith, and he's waiting for a future inheritance. That's the meaning of that. Now the fourth one. This is probably my favorite. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him to a place where a fire was burning against a wall. And one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason of that. So had he him about to the backside of the wall, where he saw the man saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, uh, of the which he did also continually cast, but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, What means this? 
The interpreter answered, This is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, that is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how the work of grace is maintained in the soul. Incredible picture. What's going on is there's this wall and there's this bowl and the fire is burning. And then there's the devil standing and pouring buckets of water on that bowl, but he cannot put the fire out. No matter how hard he tries, the fire just seems to burn higher and hotter and brighter. And Christian doesn't know why. He stands there and looks, and he will not know why until he's taken around behind the wall. And who is behind the wall? Christ. And what is Christ doing behind the wall? Feeding oil into the bottom of the fire, right? Secretly, though. And why secretly? To teach you that you cannot always see what Christ is doing to maintain grace in your life. You may be going through terrible trials. You may be suffering, going through difficulties. And you feel like your faith is weakening and all that. Christ is hes all over you at those times. Sustaining you, giving you what you need. Empowering your grace. And boy, does that frustrate the devil. For sure, this trial will quench it. Uh-uh. He hadn't quenched any true believer's grace. It's never happened. And yet he keeps trying. Isn't that incredible? Turn in your Bible to Luke 22. We'll cover some verses that some of you have heard me talk about many times before, but it just fits like a lock and a key, this particular picture. Somebody read Luke 22, 31 and 32. Okay, so Jesus is talking to who there? Simon Peter. He's giving him a warning. Simon, Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. What does that mean? He's going to, he's going to test you. The you is plural, by the way. Southern version will be, he's going to test you all. He's going to sift you all, okay? It's, it's plural, okay? But I've prayed for you, Simon, in particular. Why Simon in particular? He knew what was coming. And what was coming for Simon? He's going to deny him. And he's about to say, Lord, I'm ready to die for you. He said, oh, really? (laughs) Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. But now look at the verse. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. I'm not good at drawing a kneeling, praying person. But this is Jesus represented by a cross. That I can draw. All right. Now, Jesus is praying. And who is Jesus praying to? He's praying to... His heavenly Father, which I cannot represent by any symbol. I'm forbidden. But anyway, he's praying to God the Father. And about whom is he praying? Who's he praying for? He's praying for Simon. And what is the topic of Jesus' prayer? Yeah, but look carefully. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Is this not a picture of... Isn't Bunyan a picture of of Jesus praying ministry for his people? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, Christ feeds the oil in in Bunyan's analogy. 
The Father sustains it in Jesus' prayer. Do you see that? It's so fascinating. This verse has so much theology in it. You know, we think that our faith in Christ is our own thing, right? We're justified by faith. We believed, we accepted, we received, right? Then why in the world is Jesus praying to the Father about it? <laughs> He's praying to the Father about your faith, about Simon's faith. One would think theologically accurate would be for Jesus to talk to who about Simon's faith? Who would be the best person to talk to Simon about Simon's faith? Simon himself. He says, I'll talk to Simon. Simon, I'm talking about your faith. Well, he is talking to him about his faith, but not directly. He's telling him, I've prayed for you concerning your faith. That's what I'm going to tell you about your faith. But who is he really talking to about Simon's faith? He's talking to his heavenly father. And he's saying, oh, father, oh, father, don't let Simon's faith fail. Keep his faith going. He's going through a trial. He's going to end up this night weeping bitterly. He's going to deny that he even knows me. But it isn't true. He's just lying out of fear. Sustain his faith, Father. Does Jesus pray for you like that? You better believe he does. And as a matter of fact, if he doesn't, you will lose your faith. I really believe that. If he does not sustain you, you really think, all right, I'm going to keep believing. Satan, come what may. You come on. You bring any temptation to me. Now, Jesus, leave me be. Don't pray for me. Don't help me in any way. Don't send any angels. Don't do anything for me. It's just me and my faith against the devil and the world and my own flesh, how do you think you're going to do? <laughs> how long do you think you'll last? <laughs> I mean, come on, be humble enough to realize that you cannot sustain your own faith. But Jesus can and the Father can. And he gives, Satan, he gives Simon what he needs. And what did Simon need that night? Well, he needed the rooster crowing. He needed to remember Jesus' words. He needed Jesus to look at him as he walked by. That's what it says in Luke. As the rooster was crowing, Jesus looked at Simon. And what happened when Jesus looked at Simon and their eyes met? I told you so. I told you you would do this. And what effect do you think that had on Simon? It was like a dagger to his heart. And what did it make Simon do? Probably run away from there and go find a good place to cry. And that was the beginning of the return for Simon. And so he says here, after you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Not if you might turn back or perhaps you might. When you have turned back, then help your brothers because they're going to need it too. This is so instructive to me. Do you see the oil being poured in into Simon that night? He's sustaining him. He's helping him, even through pain, even through suffering and struggle. I looked on. I look on it kind of like the Berlin airlift. Remember that when we, it was, Berlin was surrounded by communists, you know, East Germany and all that, and there was no food, and we kept flying supplies in there, kept flying supplies in there, and and finally, they gave up, you know, and you know, West Berlin maintained as a bastion of freedom in the middle of East Germany because there was supply, a steady supply, a steady supply, surrounded by communism, steady supply of provisions. Probably don't know what I'm talking about. I love history. But anyway, that's what happened. God does that for your soul. That's all I'm saying. He keeps you going even at your lowest times. The bowl of fire. Oh, how I wish you would understand that. Do you see how humbling that is to realize it's not you holding on to Christ? It's Jesus holding on to you. Do you see how encouraging that is? That there is no combination of water that Satan can pour on you that will quench your flame? Oh, that's so sweet. Then he shows him the stately palace. I saw also that the interpreter took him again by the hand and led him to a pleasant palace, a pleasant place where was built a stately palace. 
and at the sight of which Christian was greatly delighted, and he also saw to the top of it certain persons walking who were clothed all in gold. And Christian said, May we go in thither? He wants to go in. It's a beautiful palace. I'd like to go in. Then interpreter took him and led him toward the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men who desired to go in but dared not. There also sat a man at a little distance from the door at a table side with a book and an inkhorn before him to take the name of him that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do the men that would enter what hurt and mischief they could. Now was Christian in somewhat amazement. At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of a very stout countenance come up. And he goes up to the man that sat there and says, Set down my name, sir. The which, when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword, put his helmet on his head, and rush toward the door upon the armed men, who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man, not at all discouraged, fell to hacking and cutting most fiercely. So after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked on the top of the palace, saying, Come in, come in, eternal glory shalt thou win. Well, what is this a picture of? Well, in Acts 14, the Apostle Paul said, It is through many hardships that you enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to just walk in comfortably. There's a bunch of armed guys standing there and saying, You want to get in here, you've got to get past us. And one guy says, Okay. Write my name down. And he puts on his armor and he runs right at these guys. And they hack and cut and all that. And he gets in there. The kingdom of heaven is taken by violent people, basically. <laughs> You've got to want it. You've got to go in there and take it. That's the lesson of this particular thing. It is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. Boy, is that a message Americans need to hear. We think it's like flowery beds of ease. Just walk the aisle, sign the card, and you're in. And then it's just comfortable. No, it isn't. It's warfare to get in there. Now, this next one, number six, we're going to close with it tonight. And Christian said, let me go hence. He wants to go. He wants to begin his journey. Nay, stay, said the interpreter, till I have showed thee a little more. And after that, thou shalt go on, their way, on thy way. So he took him by the hand again and led him into a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. I would say of anything that is in this book, this one causes me the most disturbance. This is a very disturbing picture. Very, very distressing. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. This is so incredible. Every time Christian wants to know what the deal is with this guy, the interpreter says, talk to him. Talk to him. Ask him. Very interesting. Talk to the man. Then Christian says to the man, what art thou? The man answered, I am what I was not once. What was thou once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. That means somebody who claimed to be a Christian, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thoughts that I should get in there. Well, but what, are thou now? what art thou now? I am now a man of despair and I am shut up in it as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. But how camest thou in this condition? I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. 
I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, but is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. It's just brilliant how Bunyan writes this because you really don't know what the state is with this guy. He said, talk to him. Find out. Ask him, said the interpreter. Nay, said Christian, pray, sir, you do it. Then said the interpreter, is there no hope? But you must be kept in this iron cage of despair. No, there is none at all, said the man. Why, the son of the blessed one is very pitiful. He's merciful. Man answered, I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. And I have done despot to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Interpreter, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? Man, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. Interpreter, but canst thou not now repent and turn? Man, God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, himself hath shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men in the world let me out. O eternity, eternity! How shall I grapple with the mystery that I must meet with in eternity? The misery I must meet with in eternity. Then interpreter said to Christian, Let this man's misery be remembered by thee and be an everlasting caution to thee. Well, said Christian, this is fearful. God help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I may shun the cause of this man's misery. Now, the thing that's fascinating about this is we have no ultimate answer about this man's condition, do we? It's just that he believes himself to be lost. He believes himself to be shut up in this cage and no one can get out. Later on in this journey, Christian and Hopeful will be in Giant Despair's castle, and yet there's a way for them to get out, though for a time it seems they cannot get out, you see. But they've got the key of promise, right? Does this man have the key of promise? We don't really know. All we know is that when you give in to sin, you render yourself into this hopeless state. Now, I'm not saying that later on this man's not going to get out. We really don't know. All we know is that he believes there's no grace for him. Is it possible for somebody who is genuinely saved to get to this point where they yearn to be saved, they yearn to be freed from sin, but cannot? It's a question, isn't it? But is that not also letting him know that he doesn't know yeah, interpreter never tells him. He never says what, how this man's going to end up. All he says is, let him be a warning to you. Don't give in to lust. Don't give in to temptation. Don't give in to sin. Or you may find yourself in an iron cage of despair and you will find no way out. Now, how do we put this vision together with the bowl of grace and, and fire together? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? But yet both of them come straight from Scripture, don't they? All of this is quoting, for the most part, uh, the Hebrews 6 warnings. And I guess the bottom line is don't sin. Yes, God is sustaining you by grace. Yes, he's continuing to pour the oil of grace in. But don't lay the rain uh, to the neck of your lust. But rather stay firm and sober and vigilant. Doesn't Scripture counsel you to do that? Doesn't Scripture counsel you to stand firm and be self-controlled and vigilant because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Now, the final thing he talks about here is the dream of Judgment Day. 
And uh, I, we're out of time now. But why don't we begin with it next time? I want to point to you at one thing on page 102. And after he gets done with all of these visions, I'll tell you what, it's going to take me two minutes to read it. Let me read it, if it's all right with you, because I want to get to the finishing point. So he took Christian by the hand again and led him into a chamber where there was one rising up out of bed. And as he put on his raiment, he shook and trembled. Then said Christian, why did this man tremble thus? The interpreter then bid him to tell Christian the reason of his so doing. And so he began and said, This night, as I was in my sleep, I dreamed, and behold, the heavens grew exceedingly black. Also it thundered and lightened in a most fearful wise. And that put me into an agony. So I looked up in my dream and saw the clouds rack at an unusual rate, upon which I heard a great sound of a trumpet, and saw also a man sat upon a cloud, attended with the thousands of heaven. And they were all in flaming fire. Also the heavens were in a burning flame. And then I heard a voice saying, Arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. And with that the rocks rent and the graves opened and the dead that were therein came forth. Some of them were exceeding glad and looked upward and some sought to hide themselves under the mountains. Then I saw the man that sat upon the cloud open the book and bid the world draw near. Yet there was by reason of a fierce flame which issued out and came from before him a convenient distance betwixt him and them as betwixt the judge and the prisoners at the bar. I heard it also proclaimed to them that that was attended on the man that sat on the cloud, gather together the tares, the chaff, and the stubble, and cast them into the burning lake. And with that the bottomless pit opened just whereabout I stood, out of the mouth of which there came in an abundant matter, uh, manner smoke and coals of fire with hideous noises. It was also said to the same persons, Gather my wheat into, it, into the garner. And with that I saw many caught up and carried away into the clouds, but I, was, but I was left behind. I also sought to hide myself, but I could not. For the man that sat upon the cloud still kept his eye upon me. My sins came into my mind, and my conscience did accuse me on every side. Upon this I awakened from my sleep. So here's a man dreaming that he's left behind and that he's going to be condemned for his sin. What a terrifying dream. But what was it that made you so afraid of this sight? The man answered, Why, I thought that the day of judgment was come and that I was not ready for it. But this frighted me most, that the angels gathered up several and left me behind. Also the pit of hell opened her mouth just where I stood. My conscience too afflicted me. And as I thought, the judge had always his eye upon me, showing indignation in his countenance. Then said the interpreter to Christian, Hast thou considered all these things? Seven things now. The picture of the man, I can't do it by memory, I'll just read them. The picture of the man, the dusty room, remember, that was cleaned up after the water was sprinkled on it. Passion and patience. The little brat that wants it now. And the sober-minded young boy that is patient and willing to wait. Fire against the wall, secretly sustained by the grace of God. The stately palace into which you have to enter by fighting. And then the picture of that man of despair in an iron cage because he gave in to his lusts. And then the dream of judgment day that this man has that he's left behind. And then he asks him, what do you think about this? And all of it puts me into two things, hope and fear. And the two are blended together, aren't they? <laughs> and God works the same isn't in us, doesn't he? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We do not fear condemnation, but we should fear sin. We should fear the effect of sin on our walk with Christ. These things keep you safe. If you only have fear, you will be swamped and overwhelmed in the Christian life. You cannot continue that way. If you only have hope without a sober-minded assessment of the fact that your enemy, the devil, prowls around, 
then you are like a, a sailboat with huge sails and all kinds of hope, but no ballast to keep you balanced. The two are balanced together in these visions, aren't they? And so he says, okay, I'm ready to go. I want to make my journey. And that's where we end tonight. Any uh, questions or comments about all of these seven visions or insights that you may have? What does it make you think? Faith is a gift of God, not by works. That's right. Other thoughts? What do you think about the man in the cage? Yeah. Couldn't find repentance. Yeah. And yet, and yet, the promise of the gospel is that he will in no wise cast out any who come to him. That's the promise that gets them out of the castle of despair. Yeah, go ahead. That's true. And you can get yourself into a state like that. I wonder if Peter, when he was weeping bitterly, was like the man in the cage. I wonder. You know, I, I wonder if the restoring came later after Jesus was risen from the dead and spoke to him three times and said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. I wonder that. Because that night must have been a horrible night for Peter. And I think there can be times in a healthy Christian life that you can be very much like that man of despair where you think, I can never get out of this. There is no way Christ will forgive me for this. And I wonder if that's what it was like for him. Yeah. I think it's very possible. Yeah. Went back to fish and he's through with me. And so what if Jesus risen from the dead? I'm lost. It's almost like nothing can bring you joy if you're lost. And that's why God is so, Christ is so gracious to restore him and give him a chance to testify to his love. Even when the interpreter asks him, will not isn't Christ gracious and merciful? When he you. So, Scott, would you mind closing in prayer tonight? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.